Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the next installment of our podcast series. This is, again, our second chapter in our quarterly publication offering called Plastic Slash Artificial. And this is the, yeah, this is the second podcast we're doing. Wow, things are flying by. Today, I am very privileged to be introducing a very good friend of mine named Dr. Kiki Lutner, who inspires, challenges, and often <laughs> rebukes me. Um, I'm joining you from Brooklyn, New York this afternoon, and I'm your pseudo host, Stefan. And can you introduce yourself, please, Dr. Kiki? Hi, I'm Kiki. Um, I'm a business psychologist. I live in London. I met Stefan when he was uh, here on his escapade slash studying business psychology and have been following Eternal Remedy ever since and very happy to be here on this podcast today. Very happy to have you, Kiki. So let's jump right into it with the first question being, what is artificial intelligence and why is artificial intelligence compared to real intelligence? Wow. I mean, this is a very long question. I can talk about that just for two hours. Nowadays, artificial intelligence can almost be anything you want it to be. It's become a buzzword that any company attaches to what they do. It's become a qualification that everyone puts on their resume if they have anything remotely to do with data, or even if not. Um, but I think at its core, you would say that artificial intelligence is a data-driven way to do a task that we either can't do as humans or can't be asked to do as humans. And at its core, in a very um, positive way, I think artificial intelligence is our hope to not have to do annoying tasks anymore as a, as a human collective, right? So it's our way to get out of anything tedious and it's also our way to discover new things or do things better, just like any other technology. Um, and then just like any other technology, it comes with all its risks. And if you compare it to real human intelligence, I mean, I'm not sure that's even completely necessary or fruitful to do. Um, the, the one thing I think why it's called intelligence is just to make clear that it does tasks that aren't just mechanical or technical, but that require some sort of insight or what maybe before the existence of artificial intelligence just humans would have been able to do. Um, but actually, we're far away from that now and artificial intelligence can mostly do tasks that humans can't do, right? Um, and there's this distinction in artificial intelligence of whether you mean general artificial intelligence and that would resemble more a human type of intelligence that can solve any task and then specific artificial intelligence which is very different from any intelligence that a human might have but it can solve very specific very difficult tasks by looking at lots of data which a human brain could never do um, so there's a bit of a distinction there cool. yeah uh, thank you for that. That was probably the most exhaustive, but also accessible definition of AI I've ever heard. Uh, so I actually really appreciate that. Can you give maybe two or three examples of how that appears 
in the real world. So for the layman such as myself, how might I interact with AI in the upcoming years or even right now? Yeah, so the obvious example I would give is from what I do and I use AI for recruitment. And what it really means is we're using data-driven methods and um, huge amounts of data that we collect on job applicants to make decisions as to whether they should get a job or not. And the difference to maybe before would be that instead of a human looking at your resume and doing an interview with you and then making a decision with all, with all of the information and the general intelligence and the biases that they have, instead we're taking information from lots and lots of job applications and we're finding some sort of data-driven way to relate it either to job performance or to success in an interview and then we kind of emulate those decisions and we find an automated way um, a data-driven or artificially intelligent way to make those decisions um, and I'm not sure that's the most accessible example maybe but it's one that I think would touch a lot of people's lives right so um, in recruitment decisions are going to be made about you using algorithms um, and then I think another area um, that I've also dabbled in a bit where really important decisions are being made about people and increasingly with algorithms um, is in the insurance space. So in the insurance space, we're already a bit more used to these rules and they already use sophisticated questionnaires and data about you to make decisions on how much your premium should be. But that's going to be increasingly um, done by algorithms. Goodness. Um, and then a third way, and I think we overlook that a lot, although it's getting in the press more, is the way it affects um, marketing and what's being shown to us online. So Facebook, Google, the advertising companies, the way they place those adverts in front of you are driven by artificial intelligence. And that's got all sorts of effects on how it shapes our thinking and what people can influence our thinking in what sort of way. So those, I think, are the three most um, worrying or the, mo the, the biggest impact fields that I see every day. But that's probably just because of the area I work in, right? So someone working in healthcare, they may, might say it will touch you um, from every time you interact with a doctor to when you want to get medical care or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but from my point of view, those are the three things but it's going to, um, or it's already starting to impact everyday life of people. Mm -hmm. I've heard it been said personally that there isn't a field or industry that will be exempt from the reach of AI. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on that vein, let's, let's make this a bit less technical and more experiential and reflect on what this means for how we draw meaning or how we exist in the modern world and have a bit of a discussion around what do you think the advantages and or threats uh, exist in now having introduced AI to basically everything? Yeah, there, again, there's so much to say, right? So on a very high level, when I look at things like what happened with Facebook um, and potentially influencing elections and certainly how people think, then to me it just looks like the introduction of a new powerful technology 
somehow messing up the existing system. So comparable to maybe when industrialization happened, when the radio was invented, when the printing press was invented. And it was always kind of followed by a reshuffling of power or some, some kind of big political events as the different agents learn to adapt that new technology um, in a way that benefits them. And someone might be ahead of the curve um, in adapting that technology. So that's on a, on a very high level. And I think any technology is an advantage, but it also brings risk with it, right? Because it just creates an imbalance in, in power depending on who's adapted that technology. So that's on a, on a really high societal level where I find it scary. Um, but I, a lot of the discussion I think is about this, oh, there's going to be a bias of, the, of an intelligent machine and all of that. I think it's not that different from any other technological innovation. And it, you should see it more like that like another time in history where we have a massively powerful new technology and how it's going to change everything around us and the way the world is organized rather than worrying about, oh, we're going to have an intelligent robot, you know? Right. Yeah. It's funny because even as I heard your answer, I realized there's something, something leading, if not suggestive in my question and that there's this dichotomy between advantageous AI or threatening AI. And I think there's still, you know, logically a lot of reflection on, you know, we, it's a gray space. We just don't actually know what advantages and disadvantages there could be. But what I think is important to introduce into the subject is we now are really confronted in a really salient way with redefining how we exist as human beings. Like, what it means to wake up in the morning and to go about your day because mm. of the introduction of AI. And, mm. you know, what I find super interesting is how much we want to avoid that conversation because it's incredibly uncomfortable. You know, in the last podcast, we discussed what it might look like to abandon the idea of having a personality, to, so to exist without continuity so to speak or to fall back into a framework of what you think you are so I'm thinking, imagine that ai now makes it so that our the very ways of working or existing or accessing goods or interacting with other people is fundamentally shifting do you do you foresee you know do you foresee there being any psychological risk to us completely redefining ourselves? I think it's hard to anticipate how different the world is going to look. And then it already looks so different in a way that we maybe don't even attribute to artificial intelligence. Um, and it's hard to tear it apart from everything else, right? So already the way we work and how we get information, how we talk to each other has changed a lot from just five or 10 years ago, right? Um, and AI is just going to accelerate that and it's just going to mean that we live in, an, in, a, in a quickly changing world for the next decades or however long. Mm -hmm. But um, then there's also more concrete worries or things to think about, right? So um, when I was working with an insurance company, for example, it really got me thinking about, you know, we were training these models to predict someone's insurance risk. And 
you would figure out quickly that some things were really predictive of risky behaviors and others weren't. But the one thing that stood out to me was that if someone looked very different in the data to somebody else, so say they live in a postcode where nobody else lives, or they have a very weird pattern of moving around that nobody else has, that automatically means that the algorithm doesn't really recognize them and can't really make a prediction about them as either being risky or not risky, right? So if you live a very different life to somebody else, it might be that all of these systems in place that will start to judge your, your um, credit, maybe your insurance risk, maybe whether you're going to get a job or not, they just won't be able to pick up on you. And so when I start thinking about people living in a world where they're more conscious about how their behavior affects algorithms, then we're going to all be incentivized to act more like everyone else. And a good example of how that maybe already is happening is when you start looking at state surveillance of social media accounts, and that might soon be connected to access to certain programs. And then you'll think twice about posting something controversial or doing anything different, right? And it would just, there might be, this is what I imagine might happen, there might be this incentive with all these systems for everyone to act straight and act very similar. And that's, I think, very scary and not good for any society. Yeah. So that, and it's, that's, that's a bit of a technical thing with algorithms, right? They recognize what they've already seen. So at least the, the ones that we have today. So if, you're, if you look very different, all of this is just not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if we are focusing too much on what will change and not taking this opportunity to define or even explore what won't change. And what I mean by that is, is there something essential or unique to human experience and human intelligence that can't be replicated through AI? And I have a heavy bias here, and this is a controversial point of view, but I think that creativity and art are the last frontiers of meaningful, like mm. contributions. And um, the reason why I think that's important to mention is because I think we need to lean into or appreciate the fact that what someone like Donald Glover, who I'm a huge fan of, mostly because of his robust beard, but someone like Donald Glover can't be replicated. The, the thought process or his contributions is the, the magnitude of his cognitive ability can't be rep- replicated because he comes from this framework of pure creative expression. So the question I want to introduce to this part of the conversation is, do you think there's something unique about um, our humanity or our mm-hmm. consciousness that can't be replicated through AI? I mean, yeah, that's a, it's a very good question to think about, but also one where I, I would like to agree and say, you know, we can't put the unique, unique experiences and, and talents together that any given individual might have and then come up with the same ideas with artificial intelligence. But then, you know, 10 years ago, um, when I was studying, they, they said, oh, computers will never be able to do face recognition. It's way too complicated. You know, I was studying philosophy. They were saying, no, it's not possible. And 
you know, a few years later, here we are, right? So you can't, you can't, it's hard to make those predictions, right? But at the same time, humans will be humans, right? So why, why would someone build a machine that's exactly like a human? So we might get machines to accomplish certain tasks. And when we're talking about creative tasks, um, we might have an algorithm that can write a really good screenplay, but it won't ever replace a whole person that goes out and says, this is my creative work, this is who I stand for, this is how I grew up, this is what I've seen, this is what I make of it, right? So yeah, I think artists and, and humans, I mean, we, we'll use artificial intelligence, like I said in the beginning, to make our lives easier, not to replace us. There's plenty of humans around. It would just be a waste of money to try and replicate a human. Right. It's what I would think, right? Maybe there's someone out there, or there probably are people out there trying to do it. There's definitely, there's definitely a porn, uh, like a guy who owns a porn agency trying <laughs> to replicate you. Um, <laughs> but I think you touched the most, important, the most important part of humanity. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the essential quality, actually. <laughs> um, you touched on something that I want to lean into or highlight a bit in um, having AI do human things. Because that I make sense of and that I can appreciate has real practical significance and bearing um, for the better, I think. But where I'm a bit confused or suggest we add a bit more inquiry is why we need to add humanistic qualities to AI. So, for example, watching the movie Her still stirs me. I, I watched it a couple years ago, but it still stirs me because... The, the measure of success for creating the, operate, the operating system in uh, that movie was how close to an actual human uh, experience around humanistic things such as uh, emotional intelligence and vulnerability and music taste and um, comfort. The, the, the measure of success was how close you can get to those attributes. Mm-hmm. And so... For me, the question is, why do we want to put that in an algorithm? Why, why do we think that needs to be automated and uh, replicated through a system? Because, again, I think this is stuff that just doesn't lend itself to a system. Yeah, yeah. But actually, now that you make that point, I'm starting to think about, um, first of all, Siri, right? So you want Siri to be as human as possible just because people are used to interacting with a, a human. So a technology that is more intuitive is easier for users to use, right? So um, if I tell you it's an assistant, you can ask them anything that you would ask a person. That's a lot easier for me to understand than making some kind of robot that has its own interaction rules. So just like emulating humanity and recognition of emotions helps just as a user interaction tool, right? So things like Siri might use it because of that. And then also you're seeing these weird, um, well, I say weird, but these healthcare applications against depression. And I think I've recently talked to someone um, who mentioned a study that I haven't seen, but that apparently people feel more comfortable in some scenarios disclosing emotional issues to a robot rather than a therapist. And so they're starting to make those kind of chatbot interactions. So that's actually a very interesting point, right? Where we can create a, 
a human, a fake human interaction. And as humans, knowing that it's not another human, we might be able to open up in a completely different way, right? Yes. Which is that, that I find scary and interesting at the same time because you might think, yeah, that's great. And then people can open up. But on the other hand, how sad, right? Like if we're all sitting there talking to robots instead of other humans, is that even a real life anymore? Is it a plastic life? <laughs> uh, plastic slash artificial. But I love that you introduced almost the case for replicating human interaction because I think it's too easy for us to default to the conservative view of being like, no, this is sacred, holy space that mm. should be put into technology. So on that vein, what do you think, what do you think the resistance or acceptance to AI says about us? So if we were to divide uh, things loosely into two camps of there's the evangelists who are like, like AI is great, it's good for us, it's going to bring the world into a better place. There are the skeptics, maybe like the Elon Musk and the uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's were like, we should probably take a sec to uh, step back and think about the implications of AI or even those who are more uh, adamant that we don't introduce it across the board into our social worlds. Um, what do you think that says about either party? What is it that we're trying to hold on to or aspire to by choosing either pole? It's just that change is scary, isn't it? And you, you don't have any control over what it's gonna grow into. Mm -hmm. But that said, I don't think it's an option not to have it, you know? It's not like Elon Musk is gonna say, let's not do it, and then everyone stops. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's a it's more difficult journey of trying to get regulation in place and trying to anticipate consequences or trying things on a smaller scale um, and seeing what happens. And, you know, like with everything, there will be mistakes along the way, right? And what we've seen in the probably the last year, even only, um, the conversation around ethics and AI is really perking up and there's starting to be more and more voices saying we need social scientists involved when we design these systems, psychologists even. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that I think is, is a good sign, right? It means that we're using this technology at 11 now where we're starting to see real negative consequences and we want to understand what they are and how we can, how we can um, help avoid them. And in the EU, we have GDPR that came through a big piece of legislation um, that's more from the consumer point of view, trying to protect us from companies just going rampant with data and employing AI algorithms, right? And what that means for me, for example, with the algorithms I created for selection, someone in a selection process can now email us and say, hey guys, I don't want to be judged by this algorithm and we have to provide an alternative way of judging them. And that's thanks to reg regulation, thanks to GDPR. And, um, you know, as, as much as that's not very common, I don't think, I haven't seen it happen. But it means that if someone has a good reason to believe that the AI doesn't apply to them, because for some reason they look very different, you know, like what we talked to, what we talked about before, then it gives them a workaround. And it's those kind of things that are important, I think, to implement and to think about. 
with, with AI because it, it is going to happen. We can't do anything against it, right? And I don't think we should either. There's a lot that it can help us with. Um, but yeah. No, I agree. I think definitely more formal regulatory bodies are absolutely necessary. I think that's hard to dispute. Um, but also more informal bodies such as, as you're saying, psychologists, philosophers, uh, humanistic and behavioral science uh, researchers in general. Because I think something to, is to be said through the existential lens again, in that, you know, we, we can define an object by its objectness. So for example, a chair is a chair because of its chairness. A human is a human by its humanness, but that's very hard to define and very hard to pinpoint. But we can somehow, I guess, uh, somewhat relate it to consciousness and freedom. And the reason why I want to introduce that is because what do you think is, what do you think our desire for bringing about AI says about our journey into more humanness? Mm. Because I, I think ultimately, it's very interesting that we hold a societal value of effectiveness, productivity, speed, growth, but mm. how much of that is actually moving us towards more humanness? Mm. I think it's a laziness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In some cases, you just want things done. Yeah. But also, inherently, it's a way of looking at data, right? in a more structured way. So the way we make decisions and we work as humans is we collect data in our lives and we summarize them in some way in our brain, some of which we understand very well, others we don't. So we use heuristics, biases, things like that to summarize data, emotions, to summarize data and experiences we've had and then make decisions about what's in front of us. And at least within the, the research community, there's this fascination with data and statistics and then using data-driven methods like um, artificial intelligence to somehow find a cleaner, if you will, way of making decisions that isn't as biased or we talk about the black box with artificial intelligence, but a real black box is our brain and us as humans, right? Yeah, so yeah. some sort of more objective way of making decisions and that's why it's desirable as well for AI to be different than human intelligence because we want it to, to make better decisions than us ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually, I think, a very interesting point that I've been thinking about with algorithms, um, especially in recruitment. We think a lot about biases and, and personal connections that people have to people they interview or they recruit for a job. And you can't help it as a human, right? If someone comes from my hometown and speaks with a German accent and loves Kim Kardashian, I'm going to be like, yeah, uh, you know, I have a better feeling towards recruiting them. You can't help it. And you can sit there and have um, very objective rating systems and committees, but the bias is always going to seep in. And with algorithms, they have, they, also inherit bias from the data, of course, and from the methodology that they employ. But it's way easier for me or for a company to go in and investigate the algorithm and try and make changes to it and monitor how 
the decision-making of the algorithm changes compared to doing that with a human recruiter, right? Like what company do you know that sits down and even if you attempted to do it, we know that things like unconscious bias training doesn't really work. Um, you have to do it. You have to sort of retrain every single human. It's very difficult. It's going to take generations to, to really affect change. Whereas with an algorithm, I can go in and change a few levers and it will make different decisions. And on a, when I think about that on a larger scale, that's, that's really something quite amazing, right? We, we need a whole propaganda network and generations of education and campaigns and building relationships to change human thinking. But in an algorithm, we might need a slightly different methodology, a different data set, and maybe some constraints, and it can make decisions in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really promising, but at the same time scary to yeah. me. That's, that's a really powerful point. And the most important thing I'm gonna extract from all that is that Kim Kardashian can be used as a selection criteria. <laughs> yeah. um, on that vein, let's wrap up with this last question. And one of our editors, Rich, who's a brilliant creative and has introduced so many powerful ideas into the eternal remedy system. But he, he, we were speaking the other day about this topic of plastic slash artificial. And he thought it'd be interesting for us to explore authentic intelligence in relation to artificial intelligence. And, you know, what we mean by that is artificial intelligence, as you've been saying, is a tool that we can use at scale to address, if not solve, real social problems mm -hmm. uh, or problems even at the individual level. But if we were to believe in something like authentic intelligence, could we use that as a tool of sorts to address social problems? So for example, can we help people become more connected to their self-concept or, or understand others better and use that as a tool for social progress in a way that artificial intelligence can't touch? I mean, there's a lot of things you can do that artificial intelligence can't do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but specifically around authenticity, you know, because really what's kind of in this conversation and when we think about the concepts of plastic and artificial in relation mm -hmm. to human beings, it's, to, it's almost a negation of authentic living. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, without really throwing too deep of a value assessment, we, I think we all kind of hold that trueness is probably worth being pursued or pursuing. And so if we could help people, I guess, pursue trueness, could that also be a tool that we use on scale to help social problems? This is such a long question. <laughs> it's a very long question. Well, I mean, I'm not sure this is what you're trying to get at, but what it's got me thinking about is if you imagine a world where really we've given up a lot of the tasks we need to do, mundane and tedious tasks, okay, fine, fair enough, but also a lot of the decisions that we would usually make and we've given them up to artificial intelligence systems, then we will live in an environment that's less dictated by our own decisions. And maybe that would be a less authentic environment 
for ourselves in that sense. But it's also maybe a less biased environment, right? So authenticity in decision-making also means bias in decision-making, right? Um, so I think there might be a trade-off there where we give up our decision-making power in some domains. And that means that, you know, our team at work that we've recruited won't look as much as ourselves anymore or like made up of all of our best friends. Um, but instead it's, it's dictated or informed at least by an algorithm. And that might mean we all live in a less tailored world to our own needs, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that it's, that's a bad thing, right? You know that they say you become more and more like your parents when you get older because your genes um, become more and more important because you've started to shape your environment around what you like. Whereas when you're, when you're younger, you don't have as many means to control your environment and you're more exposed to to random things, right? But then we get older, we turn 30, we live in our own apartment, we do everything the way that we like, and we don't get as much input from outside. So you might say that's more authentic, but at the same time, it's also more, you know, um, less, less stimulating, right? It's, it's more just your vision rather than living life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Brilliant answer, as to be expected. Thank you for imparting your genius on us in this space for a really jam-packed half hour. Uh, it was an absolute honor to have you, Kiki, and always is you know, so enriching to speak to you. You have too much, uh, you've covered too much ground in your thinking space. But um, this is really cool, and I'm glad that we have, you know, I, I guess a point of view on this space from the eternal remedy lens, because I think it's a, a thought that it's an existential thought that people are really starting to um, internalize. And so I think this, this kind of conversation is really timely and meaningful. So thank you, Kiki, for joining us. Well, thanks, Stefan. Thanks for the kind words. <laughs> Not a problem. Is there anything you would say to the listeners, anything you can plug? Um, Anything I would say to the listeners? Well, get in touch if you have questions. Follow me on Twitter. News <laughs> about AI psychology. Um, also, I come back on the podcast if it means that you're this nice to me. It doesn't usually happen in real life. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely have to have you back. You're not supposed to expose that on the public space. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we talked about authenticity, right? So. <laughs> Kiki, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, for those of you listening, thank you for riding with us thus far. Again, please continue the conversation with us. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on our Instagram. Hit us up on Facebook. Send us an email. Hello at eternalremedy.com. Look forward to the magazine, To Remain Silent. The one before this series is available on the website right now for pre-order. That's eternalremedy.com slash shop. And all the plugging and marketing is done now. I'm going to wrap up the podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time. <laughs>